Well, if you brought a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, open it up to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2. Uh, I did not introduce myself beforehand. If I have not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, uh, pastor here for Riverwood, and it's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us, especially on this Thanksgiving weekend. And I just have to ask, did any of you attempt to go to the stores on Black Friday? No, no one. You guys are really, really smart. Okay, now, do any of you already have your Christmas shopping done? Okay, one. All right. She's a freak, uh, but on the good side. Me, I've thought about getting my kids some presents, uh, but I'm nowhere even close to doing it. And yet, as tempting as the sales are on Black Friday— there's no way I'm attempting it. Leanne and Megan went in, uh, later in the day when it wasn't quite so crazy. Um, but every year it seems that there's always people camping out and, and then they, they rush into the stores and then we always hear reports like this one. Overnight, an all-out battle at stores across the nation. Hours into the brutal chase for bargains. I got my fist up if somebody tries to steal something from me. In Louisville, Kentucky, Black Friday madness. Two men punching and tearing at each other's t-shirt inside a major city mall. Tempers flared at this Walmart in El Paso. Holiday shoppers appear to fight over flat screen TVs, even taking on stores security. The yearly stampede spilling into front doors, a welcome sight for retailers. <laughs> Hoping to cash in on the holiday frenzy. Sales expected to reach $80 billion in the U.S. We made it! The average American spending close to $400 throughout the holiday weekend. With some brick and mortar stores now handing out a select number of tickets to people in line for the hottest items. We're able to ticket numbers one through whatever number we have. That way it stops a lot of the chaos from happening. Some shoppers camping out for days. We've been here since Tuesday night at 9.30. All in an effort to nab great deals like this 50-inch flat-screen TV at Best Buy, marked down nearly 75% off. I think it's exciting. If it's something that you want and it's worth it, why not go and get it? Now, I don't know if you noticed, but down in this corner, it was showing the time that that was showing live on CNN. And that was from this last Friday at 6.11 a.m. Eastern Time. So that, was, that would have showed on CNN at 5 a.m. on our time, all right? Most people were still recovering from their turkey coma when all this madness is going on. And you know what's really crazy? Is, yeah, that was from 2015, just a couple of days ago. But it could have been 2014. It could have been 2013. It could have been 2012. I mean, it's just every year this seems to take place. And you would think that Everyone goes to the stores, they're going for that perfect present at the perfect price to get it for the perfect person, and now they give it, and you would think, it's done. I have just given the best gift ever. My job is complete, mission accomplished. I never have to go through that again. And yet, 365 days later, it happens again. Why? Because the luster of the gift fades. I remember, uh, what, four years ago, a friend of mine, he was going to upgrade from the iPhone 4S to the new iPhone 5. 
And so he calls me, says, hey, Aaron, you're a poor church planner. Would you like my iPhone 4S? I'm thinking, yeah. You know, so he, he just gives it to me. And me and I was addicted to that thing. I mean, I was always reading. I was researching. I was checking the weather. I'm checking the score. I'm playing a game. And occasionally I'm making a phone call. But I was on that thing all the time. Well, now I just had to upgrade. Uh, didn't have to. We did this last summer. I'd had the phone for four years. But my wife's phone went on the blink. And so she's using my old 4S until she can get something else. And I now look at that 4S that four years ago was incredibly cool. And it now looks old, small. It feels slow. It's just uncool. And I look at it and go, how could I have been addicted to this? And I can easily set it down. The luster of the gift fades. But, but it's not just the gift. It, it, it's just about anything in life. For instance, take relationships. Some of you may have had a boyfriend or girlfriend back in middle school or high school, or maybe you had a couple, three, 12 different, you know, love interests. And you had that one, and you just got near them and around them. And you just, could, I mean, you just couldn't stand to not be with them. I mean, they were just intoxicating. And then something began to happen, and you just kind of didn't like being in their presence. And instead of being so attractive, they became irritating. And now you were finding excuses to get away from them. Now, if spouses don't look at each other and uh, make each other feel funny and awkward, I'm talking middle school here. But you know what I mean. The relationship just kind of fades. Okay, how about the job then? You get the new job. You're all excited. It's a promotion. There's a raise. It's new responsibility. Now you're going to like really matter in the company. And then you meet the coworkers. You start getting the barrage of emails that you have to deal with difficult customers. You, your boss isn't upholding his or her end of the bargain when you got hired. And suddenly, your contentment disappears. We can talk about multiple areas. So often we think our contentment will come from more money or, or maybe getting a bigger house, a, a cooler car. Or, or maybe we think it's like adding another kid to the family. That, that's what's going to finally make me content. Or, or it's just one more drink. It's one more this. It's one more that. And so often it just fades. And we find ourselves just continuing to chase after contentment. Now, there's many reasons, I believe, why this contentment fades. But one that I've discovered is adversity. For instance, you get a new phone, you're all excited, it's really, really cool, but then as you start working with it, it's just not working right, and it just, it's, it's giving you problems. And suddenly, instead of going, hey, check out my new phone, you start saying things like, stupid phone, and you just kind of throw it down because it's not doing what you need it to do. You hit some difficulty, and your contentment just disappears. The same is true on deeper things than just phones. Like, you have a kid, and you're so thrilled and so happy with this baby and raising them, and then they have a personality. They have their own ideas. They just begin to implement their own way, and it can be frustrating and difficult. And now your contentment in being a parent is just, it's being tested and starts to disappear. It's just a little more work than I thought it would be. Today, we're going to go and we're going to see a couple who's right in the middle of adversity. They are in a struggle. You're going to look at their story and realize, wow, 
that is difficult. And yet we're going to discover them have a contentment that just does not match the moment. Most of us, if we look at it, would say, whoa, I would want out. And yet we're going to see them actually sit in the moment because we're going to discover that the content of their contentment was something that was so much larger than themselves because their eyes weren't on themselves and their stuff. It was on something far bigger. And so, Father, I just pray right now that you would help us to see what this bigger thing is. And you would help each of us to capture this, to, to make the contents of our contentment, not ourselves, not Christmas decorations, not presents, not uh, traditions, but to ultimately make the content of who we are Christ. So help us to see this today through your scripture. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you should be opened up already to Luke chapter 2, the famous Christmas uh, story. And we're going to start reading in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, if you've been following Jesus for very long, or maybe you've been attending church for quite a while, you've probably heard this passage multiple times, like pretty much every December. You have heard it repeatedly. And the problem is, is when you hear a story over and over and over, sometimes it begins to wear a callus on your ears and your heart because you hear the things you know and you just kind of miss the other things that are there. So what I'm inviting you today to do is to treat this like a diamond, all right? You, you may, women, you may have a diamond if you're married on your, on your ring and you look at it and yeah, you've seen that thing hundreds of times. But sometimes you just take a turn and you suddenly might see a different glimmer a different hue. You might see a different cut than you ever seen before. That's what I want you to do today. I want you to allow this Christmas story to be like a diamond, this precious jewel. And today we're just going to turn it a little bit and hopefully see something new and fresh that we've been missing all this time. So I'm going to challenge you. Don't check out. Instead, let's lean in and let's see what happens here with Mary and Joseph. All right. There we, we have all these ideas of Christmas, all right? It's this nice, warm, fuzzy, idyllic type story. But as we look at it, there are actually a lot of discomforts here in the story, all right? First, we notice that they have to travel, all right? It says in verse 1 that there's a census that's going to be, uh, that's been being put together. In 1999, my family, uh, well, Leanne and me and I think, do we have, yeah, we had uh, Karis at the time, but not Megan. Um, so we just had one kid. I was working at a church plant, uh, kind of like Riverwood, and I was working some other odd jobs. And so one of the jobs I picked up was working for the Census Bureau. I will never work for the government again. I'm sorry if you, if you work for the government. I'm not trying to insult you. But it was not the best of experiences. For instance, I would have to walk up to a house as we canvassed the area, getting ready for the forms to be mailed. And you would walk up and you'd ring the doorbell, someone would answer it, and you had to say, hi, my name is Aaron, I'm with the U.S. Census Bureau, and I have a series of uh, few questions for you. 
what is the number on your house? And they would look at you like, are you an idiot? Because the number is right next to your head. And I would just sit there and like smile and say, yes, I am an idiot. I work for the government. Uh, you know, and then they'd, you know, humor me, answer the question. And then I'd say, and what about the house on your left? And what about the house on your right? And, that, and it was utterly ridiculous. But what they were trying to do was say, are there like hidden apartments in the garage or in the basement? You know, like does grandma have her own little place? You know, in other words, how many census forms should we be sending to you in 2000? And so this is what I did in 1999 for a few weeks. Now, back in Mary and Joseph's day, the Census Bureau did not come to you, whether it be a person who asked really silly questions or a form. They made you come to them. And the way they were going to do this was everyone back then, they were really, really tied into family. Us to these days, not quite so much. But for them, family was very, very important. And so where was your family history from? What was your lineage? And so for Joseph, because he was from the line of old King David, he had to go back to what was known as the city of David, Bethlehem. Well, Nazareth, where he was living, was 80 miles away from Bethlehem. That's roughly Waverly to Cedar Rapids. Now, for us, no big deal. You throw your stuff in the car, you hop in, and hour 10, hour 15, you're, you're down in Cedar Rapids, no big deal. But back then, all they had were their sandaled feet. And so I got on Google Maps this week, and I thought, well, I wonder how long it would take you to walk from Waverly to Cedar Rapids. And it would take you roughly 24 hours, nonstop. Now, that's with nice, comfortable shoes, not sandals. That would be, we probably, you know, it was taking some sort of path. Now, the Roman Empire, they had a lot of roads, so maybe they were able to take roads for most of the way, but who knows? Maybe they had to divert and, you know, go, uh, you know, across the wilderness. Maybe they had to ford a, a river or something. I, I don't know exactly the path they took. But Mary's also pregnant, right? Pregnant ladies, well, we don't have any here today, but would any of you enjoy walking 80 miles while five, six, seven months pregnant? And I've seen a lot of heads, no. And yet this is what they did. Now, the pictures that we always see is Joseph leading a donkey while Mary's riding along. And it seems so nice, but imagine being six, seven months pregnant, riding on a donkey. I don't think it'd be all that much more comfortable. And I don't think it'd really be any faster. And so you're talking probably about this taking three, maybe four days of travel just to go and register for the census. This would be uncomfortable. But not only that, they then reached their destination, and it says there at the end of verse 7 that there was no place for them in the inn. There's no place for them to stay. Now, the word inn in the Greek just simply means guest room. So it's possible there was like a motel or hotel of some kind, and it was full because all these people have come in for the census. But it's also possible that Joseph found out that, hey, I've got this old long-lost relative that still lives in Bethlehem. Maybe they would have a place for us. And so he's, he's going up to old family, knocking on the doors. Hey, I'm Joseph from Nazareth. Here's my dad, you know. And he, he's trying to lay out the family lineage and how he's tied. And they're like, oh, yes, 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 your family. Welcome, come in. Oh, but we don't have a place for you to stay. So that's why we have this idea of the stable, because it mentions a manger. A manger was a feeding trough. This is where they would put hay for the animals to come and eat. Now, we don't know exactly what the lodging conditions were like, because there's a couple of different theories. One is that there are some hills around Bethlehem, and so there were caves. And so you might have a cave where they would just dig or chip away into the floor a feeding trough, and they just throw the hay in there. 
Or there's also evidence that some of the homes in ancient Israel were actually two stories. They would build it up and you would live in a one-bedroom apartment on the top level and kind of then hang out and do your cooking at the bottom level. But it was a little more open because you'd often bring your livestock in as well. This was to give them shelter from out from the elements. And so some people believe that maybe they found a family to stay with, but there's no room for them upstairs. And they feel bad, you know, Mary's pregnant. And so, well, here, at least you don't have to sleep outside. You can at least sleep in our barn. And so then you got Mary being pregnant. She's probably 14, 15, maybe 16 years old. She's technically not married to Joseph yet. They're just engaged. And and so she's probably having to endure all the shame that comes along with that. And now she's never gone through labor. And now she's away from home. Her mom's not going to be there to be able to help her through the labor and delivery. The the midwives that she would know in her community, they're not going to be available and present. And she's going to a city where she doesn't know anyone. Is she going to be able to find help and care? Or is Joseph, the carpenter with his calloused hands, is he going to be the one to have to bring out this child? Could you imagine how scary it would be? And their mortality rate was really high, right? For both babies and moms. I mean, if if a baby was breached and isn't coming out, it could be the death of both of them. So birthing was scary. Here at Riverwood, we've been blessed to have two babies born here just in the last three weeks. Both moms named Michelle. And when we heard the news that they were pregnant, we were so excited for them. And none of us were like, oh, I hope you make it. I hope you're okay. We live in a day and an age like, you're pregnant. Awesome. Congratulations. We hear about the birth of little Galen or Nathan. And it's like, wow, that's fantastic. And so we sign up to take a meals. We don't live in fear and then hear about their safe birth and go, man, good, I'm glad to hear that. And yet, back then, they didn't have epidurals. They didn't have a bunch of, you know, drugs that they could do. You know, it was natural remedies that they tried to do to help them out. But you basically just had to hang on and go for it. And here's this little teenage girl having to do this probably inside the equivalent of a barn. And not only that, it says that they had to wrap him in swaddling clothes and these strips of cloth you know, they're probably just finding anything and everything they can. Who knows if they thought they were going to be giving birth there. Maybe they thought they could make it to Bethlehem, register, get done, and head back. But they find themselves away from home, and now they're in a barn, and it's not clean. We don't know if there were any animals there. Maybe there weren't, but maybe there were. You know, if there's a feeding trough and there's hay around, it would be likely that there's some animals if you've ever hung around, hung around some farm animals, they, they don't exactly understand sanitation. They, they don't head outside to go use the outhouse. They, they don't exactly wipe their mouth after they're done eating. They just are animals. And here's where Jesus is being born. And they've got to wrap him up. And I, I'm sure Joseph, being a good dad, you know, cleaned out the trough, brought in some fresh hay. But he's still laying on hay. It's, it's not a nice mattress. And so I want you to see the discomfort in this whole story. You, you've got Mary and Joseph traveling 80 miles by foot, maybe by donkey. It takes them three, four days to get there. They don't know anyone. They're having to stay in an uncomfortable uh, environment. Their child's born into a very unsanitary place. Now put yourself in their shoes. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? What would your prayers sound like? I think I know what mine would sound like. If I were Joseph, 
I think I'd be walking outside the barn, looking up at the stars and saying, really? Are you serious? You said that this was going to be the Messiah and you're bringing him into the world in this? No one's going to believe this. This is crazy. I think I'd be a little frustrated because as you face this adversity, as you go through the difficulty, I think I would end up coming to a place of discontent. And yet that's not Mary and Joseph's response. I want you to notice over in verse 19, flip over there. This is right after Mary and Joseph have the shepherds visit them. Shepherds are out in the field. Angels show up. Hey, the Messiah has been born. He's in Bethlehem. Go check it out. Here's how you'll notice. He's in a manger. They show up and they're like, wow, look at this. All right. And you've got to understand, we're going to talk about the shepherds next week. But I just want you to know this part about shepherds. They were the outcasts of their society. They were smelly. They were awkward. They were the socially weird. All right. No one really liked shepherds. So these social outcasts just show up. Here they are in a dirty barn, just gone through a scary labor. And here's what it says about at least Mary. We don't know about Joseph. But verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. How in the world do you sit in a dirty barn having just gone through your first labor, which could be really scary. We have no idea who was there to help her. Their child is now put on some hay. They've been visited by these smelly shepherds. Who knows if there's animals around? The whole thing just says discomfort. And Mary's pondering this, treasuring it. How in the world is she so content? I think the answer is found in the beginning of her story. Because you see, we jumped into the middle of her story and we skipped out on the start. So flip back a page or a chapter to uh, Luke 1 and let's look at verse 26 through 38 and let's see the start of Mary's story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he, Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and excuse me, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? I've never been with a man. How in the world can I be pregnant? I've been righteous. I've kept myself pure for my future husband, Joseph. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according 
to your word. And the angel departed her. Do you see it? Mary's contentment comes because of God's word to her and God's plan. Gabriel shows up saying, here's what God says. You are favored. He delights in you. And that's why he's chosen you to be the one who will bear his son into the world. But not only that, Gabriel gives her a little evidence. Your your cousin Elizabeth, she's married to Zechariah. She's been really old. She's never been able to have kids. People started wondering, like, is there something wrong with her? Because, you know, God hasn't blessed them with children. And now here she is, past childbearing age. She's pregnant. She's even in her sixth month. And so Mary's got to see, is it true? So the story goes on. Mary travels to go see Elizabeth. And even before Mary sees Elizabeth, she calls out, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. She's running up to the house. And all of a sudden, Elizabeth hears Mary's voice. And the baby inside of her, who will become John the Baptist, leaps for joy. And all of a sudden, Elizabeth is just like flooded with the Holy Spirit. And she begins to prophesy. And she looks at Mary without Mary even having said a word to her and says, Who am I that I am blessed that the mother of my Savior, the Messiah, would come and visit me? That is all Mary, I'm sorry, that's all Mary needed to hear. That was the confirmation that not only did she hear God's word, she was seeing God's plan. God was at work. And if he could help Elizabeth in her old age get pregnant, then God was going to be with Mary through her pregnancy. That is how Mary can sit in a dirty barn going through a scary pregnancy, not knowing anyone around, being visited by the social outcast of her society, and can treasure it up in her heart. Because you see, the content of her contentment was so much bigger than herself. She realized this was more than just about some unwed teenage mom. This was a story that God had been writing since the beginning of time, and he had invited her in to be a part of it. This was about all of humanity. And so her heart, her mind, her focus, her worship was on God. It wasn't in her circumstances. And that's how she could be content. When you allow your eyes to get on the things of this earth, the struggles at work, the the struggles at home, the, the, the doubts, the fears you have, that's when you start to become discontent. It's, it's when you start to compare to others. Well, he didn't have to go through that. I, I don't see her struggling with this. God, why did you write her story that way? And as you compare, your eyes are on yourself and you start becoming discontent. Or, or, or you get caught up in just everything else. All the, the cultural trappings. And, and so you're, you're looking at the presence. You're looking at the to-do list. You're looking at all this stuff. And it just seems overwhelming. And that's how you end up being discontent. And so that's why we rush out and we think, oh, just one more party. Or just, if I just get a new shirt, if I just, you know, have one more drink, this will make me content. And all we do is we chase and grasp after temporary contentment. But it will always fade because this earth was made for a time. It is temporary. So when you try and cling for the, the, uh, the contentment of this earth, it's going to fade because this earth will eventually fade. The only way you can have a contentment that will last is when your eyes are on Christ. Philippians chapter 4 
calls it a peace that surpasses understanding. It's that peace that just seems to be there when it doesn't make sense. That, that when you lose your job, somehow you, you still have this peace. That, that when the marriage isn't going exactly the way you thought it would, you have this peace. That, that when your kids aren't doing what you always thought and dreamed they would do, you somehow still have this peace. When the doctor gives you the diagnosis, you somehow still have this peace. When the bank account isn't what you thought it should be, and you don't know how in the world you're going to retire, you still can have this peace. A peace that surpasses understanding. It's this contentment that is resting in something other than just the things of this world. If you make the content of your contentment just the stuff, just the relationships, just the trappings, it's going to fade. But when you make the content of your contentment Jesus and God's word and his plan, something happens in you. So that's why this Christmas, as we kick off this Advent series, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to not just let your eyes get caught up in the Christmas lights and decorations, to not just let your ears get caught up into the Christmas music and and all of the, the holiday holds, To not let your minds get so overwhelmed by the shopping and the presents and the parties and the to-do list. And to not put your heart on getting that certain gift. Because when you do that, that's when your contentment's going to fade. And you find yourself just longing for more. Instead, I invite you to put your ears, your eyes, your heart, your mind on Jesus. Become part of his story and let him. His story be the core of who you are and it bring this deep contentment that you may possibly have never experienced before. If you, do not, if you do not know Jesus, if you're not a follower of him, I just want to say I'm glad you're here. I'm not an arm twister. I'm not, uh, I don't motivate by guilt. But I will say I want to invite. I'll invite you into the story. Because I believe that Jesus' death on a cross was for all of humanity, and that includes you. And I would love to see you take your faith, the core of who you are, and place it firmly upon Christ. That his story is your story. And that you're not first known as a spouse, or a parent, or, or an employee, or whatever you may think you are. That if you're asked, who, who are you? The first thing that comes to mind, the first thing that's on your heart is that I follow Jesus. For most people, they just express this in prayer. They just tell God, I realize that I'm a sinner. I've been living my life apart from you. And yet Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of my sin. Jesus came down to earth for me. So Jesus, because you gave your life for me, I want to give my life to follow you. And I want you to begin to restore me into who you see me to be. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And as you begin to follow Jesus, God takes the image of Christ and begins to shape it in you so that you will begin to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived and even one day leave behind what Jesus left behind. So I invite you to make Jesus the center of your life, to seek him. And as you do, that's when you seek contentment. If you already follow Jesus, I just want to encourage you, remind you, this world is bombarding us with even good things. All right, we're going, my family's going Christmas shopping today. It's going to be good. It's going to be fun. 
There's nothing wrong with it. But if that's all it is about, then we're going to become discontent. But if we allow the trees and the music and the lights and the times of worshiping at Riverwood to draw our hearts towards Jesus, we will find that contentment that lasts, that peace that surpasses understanding. So that's why I want to encourage you this Christmas. Don't just seek the things that everyone else is seeking. Otherwise, you end up at fights on Black Friday. Instead, seek Jesus, because that's when you will find contentment. So, Father, I just pray that you'd help us to do this. It's so easy to say it. It's another thing to live it. But, God, I believe that all things are possible with you. And so I admit my failings. I admit that I get too caught up in the things of this world. My eyes lust after the, the things that are here instead of longing for the things that are of you. So, God, I pray that you would just continue to take each and every one of us, no matter where we are at in our journey with you, and you would just help us to see what it means to follow you during this Christmas season and on throughout 2016. Lord, if there's anyone here that that has never placed their faith in you, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you'd open their eyes and their heart to making that step of commitment, that they would cross that line of faith, they, they would enter into a relationship with you, allowing you to become the core of who they are. And I pray for those that have been following you, but have just kind of kept you on the side and and they've just made their life about themselves. Lord, would you again help our ears, our, our eyes, our hearts, our minds to be centered on Jesus so that we can experience that contentment that all of us long for. Forgive us, God, when we try to make the things of this world the source of our joy. And instead, the things of this world should instead cause us to exult and worship you, the giver of all good things. So, Father, this Christmas season, would you write a different story? Would you make this different for us? Would you help us to find contentment so that we can truly worship Jesus and enjoy this Advent? And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.